There is one word that keeps coming up for me. Accountability. And it's really reverberating up and down my back and in my throat right now. It's not enough to say the right words. It's not enough to do research like it's academic. This work is all about its impact on other people. And part of transforming is being uncomfortable. This is the Mindfully White Anti-Racist Affinity Group Podcast. I'm Christine Eaton. On this show, you'll hear white people talking frankly about whiteness, white privilege, white supremacy, and what they're trying to do about it. But first, let's go over a few important points. You may be wondering, what is an affinity group? It's a group of people linked by a common interest or purpose. So in this case, if you identify as white and are working towards racial justice, or are just curious and want to learn more, this podcast might be for you. The phrase mindfully white means that being present with open-mindedness, curiosity, non-judgment, and compassion were used to create a supportive space within which our guests were invited to share their stories. Throughout the episode, you'll be prompted to use mindfulness as a way to practice working with your own thoughts, feelings, and emotions with regard to this topic. As you may know, mindfulness practice has deep roots in Buddhist teachings, which have been preserved for the last 2,600 years. As your host and a student of Buddhism, I pay respect to the Asian ancestors from whom these practices come, and specifically the Buddha's foundational teaching of the Four Noble Truths. These inspired the framework for this podcast. In that teaching, the Buddha prescribed a way to end suffering. Here, we are looking at how we can individually contribute to ending racism, a form of suffering, by seeing it more clearly in ourselves and everyday life, understanding its causes, and taking action. You will often hear that it's an issue for white people to center themselves and their voices when talking about race. This is true and needs to be carefully examined within the context in which it happens. Here we need to hold two things as realities at the same time, that centering white voices is often problematic when talking about race, and that it is also necessary so that white people can support and learn with each other in community. Listening to and engaging with these conversations are by no means a replacement for taking the time to do the same with black indigenous and people of color. This is an addition to that work. Please refer to the show notes for some helpful resources. Before we begin, I'd like to offer some suggestions on how to listen to this conversation. It's important to remember that our guests are not experts on racism, white supremacy, or privilege. Neither am I. We are offering our dialogue primarily as an opportunity for you, the listener, to engage with curiosity. Those being interviewed are inviting you into their perspective and direct experience. There will no doubt be times that you disagree with what's being said, feel it could be said a different way, or even find yourself becoming agitated. You're also likely to find ways that you relate, learn, and want to know more. As you listen, I encourage you to be aware of what you're feeling and thinking with a sense of openness and compassion for yourself and others. Even notice where in your body you feel it. This is an exercise in mindfulness. And I believe that if we can take this same approach with us into conversations we have in person, on social media, or anywhere really, we may be able to move along this path further together. Let's get started. 
episode, I'll be speaking with Esther, a 31-year-old woman from West Newton, Massachusetts, the traditional indigenous territories of Massachusetts and Pawtucket. Esther is a digital literacy specialist who has focused part of her work on implicit bias. In addition, you'll hear of other identities she holds, such as being mixed race, which has informed her view and approach to anti-racism. So the first question, as you may recall, is really about how you identify as a person, you know, who you are, um, what identities do you hold? Generally speaking, who are you? So my name is Esther Brandon. I use she, her pronouns. I generally identify as a mixed race person with a lot of white privilege, um, which is why I was so invested in being part of this, this podcast series and speaking with you for this project. I think that it's really important that as someone who has been treated as white, who thinks about things as part of a white narrative, that everyone belongs in dismantling white supremacy. Every single person needs to do their part. I also identify as a queer Jewish person. I'm bi pansexual. I'm a a reformed Jew, a very culturally Jewish, not so much religious. Uh, I went to Catholic high school, so I've sort of felt that um, that feeling of otherness, even though I have very, very pale skin. I also identify as, as a disabled person as well. I have rheumatoid arthritis, which significantly limits my mobility a lot of times. I guess the idea of holding multiple identities speaks very strongly to me because my, my lived experience, um, you know, different parts of my identity inform my daily life and work in, in different ways and in sometimes conflicting ways. So it's very interesting to navigate personal and professional relationships in that way. I would also like to add that I'm, you know, speaking from my own personal experiences and just to keep in mind that anything that I say that refers to groups of people or, you know, people with certain identities that they are entirely my own experience and may not be applicable to other people who share uh, the same characteristics or identity categories. Okay, thank you. When you mentioned mixed race, could you just clarify which races you identify as? Sure. So um, on my mom's side, our family heritage is, is from England and France, so very white. On my dad's side of the family, we're Sephardic Jews, and so um, my dad is actually mixed Latinx and white. Spanish is my dad's first language, right? And so I hold that identity as well. Okay, thank you. Um, so there's a lot of intersectionality here with you, and I look forward to hearing how um, it shows up as you navigate the specific avenue of, of racism. And white privilege, as you mentioned, is something that you know that you have, regardless of um, the ancestry that you also have. So when it comes to being white, um, how do you define that? Or how does it show up for you? What is your personal working definition of, of whiteness? So I view whiteness very much as how I view sexuality, and that is on a sliding scale. Whiteness is defined by the cultural majority, and that has changed through time. We have seen Italians go from being other to being considered white. We have seen Jews go from being other to being considered white. 
So I believe whiteness is how you are generally perceived by the majority. So for me, that very much shows up within my white privilege and how I've been treated my whole life, even though that might not necessarily reflect my identity. And so coming with that reflection comes power and privilege that other people who might not look like me you know, would be treated differently based off of um, other people's implicit biases and their judgments. Right. And I know implicit bias is something that you think about a lot <laughs> and teach. Uh, so we're, we'll talk about that, I'm sure. Um, so when it comes to the topic of realizing for oneself that racism and whiteness is a real thing, can you go back and think of a time where it started to become very obvious to you that racism was real or that the white privilege you had or you being perceived as white was something that was happening? Yeah, I guess around middle school is when I first kind of realized that being Jewish, being of Latinx background, that, you know, people found that out and would start to treat you differently. And that really hit home in ninth grade when I was sent to Catholic high school. And that was, that was the first time that I really experienced that. Um, and it hit, it hit pretty hard. I was pretty severely bullied in high school. So I still kind of car- carry those memories with me. If you're comfortable, do you feel okay just explaining a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, I never realized how religion and race were so intertwined. And I would have, you know, experiences in high school where teachers would tell me to like pray to Jesus and save my soul. Or, you know, other students would tell me that I would be going to hell because I didn't believe in Catholicism or, you know, very well-meaning people who are just trying to save me, right? I don't need to be saved. Your beliefs are not necessarily my beliefs. And when I was outspoken, I, it was very clear that I was started to be treated differently. And I don't think these kids really realized it either, right? This, these are really large, complicated topics that, you know, I'm still grappling with, still trying to understand. I, I think it just all goes down to, you know, you're, you're something that's other. And that invokes fear and mistrust in some people. And that really puts, puts an imprint on yourself and really makes you think about how, how do I treat others? What implicit biases do I have? Have I been accidentally doing this to someone else? How do I take the lessons that I've felt in my own life and make sure that I'm treating everyone else from a place of kindness? The imprint of otherness. I, I made a note of that statement. So what you're describing is a really palpable, memorable time where you felt what it was like to be othered. And now the connection I'm trying to make is at what point did that otherness become clear to you that people of color experience this in a particular way? Right. Um, you know, I, I think that that was high school as well. Um, in my graduating class, or, or actually, I think in the whole school, there was only one um, African American family. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Rhode Island, and so I saw the way that that other family was being othered, and that's where I guess I, I you know, tried to make that connection. Can you say more about how what you were seeing happening? Right. So, uh, you know, high school, there's lots of cliques people of like mind sitting together in the cafeteria, you know, there's the side table of 
of people without many friends. We always seem to end up in those same places. We always seem to end up without a group for a team project. We always seem to be the last ones to be picked at gym class. We are always the ones hiding out in, in the pottery room when we were given you know, any free time. It made it easy to be friends because it, it felt like it was us against the world. What I'm really hearing you talk about is belonging and being othered. But I keep wanting to draw the conversation back to racism and what it is like to be a white person who experiences being a member of the in-group in that way. So if you have all these other factors that make you part of an out-group in a variety of ways, it's interesting to think about how that shifts the dial on the spectrum that you're talking about. I, I do want to be very careful, though, of not aligning my experiences with experiencing racism, because I think that those are two very different, different things by the way that, you know, if you have brown skin, you are, there's an immediate association with a whole number of stereotypes with implicit bias with, you know, met and unmet expectations. And that is not something that I have to deal with on a daily basis. That does not impact every single interaction that I have with other people. Uh, that, you know, my name, Esther Brandon, is a very white classic name, usually easy to pronounce, right? I don't have to face barriers at every single letter, like level from like reading my resume to looking at Facebook to, you know, walking into Starbucks, right? Is that because I have so much white privilege, I also have street privilege. As a bi pansexual person, I am currently in a long-term relationship with a man, right? And even though I'm very active in the queer community, um, I co-run the LGBTQ plus group on, um, at Brandeis campus, right? I'm very involved in, in these activities and being out and proud, but to, you know, the everyday person, I'm, I'm in, you know, a straight multiracial relationship and that, you know, that, that has privilege associated with it versus, you know, one of my best friends is trans and I just got to celebrate her wedding to her wife uh, yesterday, right? So like I face a very different lived experience than she does. Uh, so in, in many ways, I, I, I have so much privilege and I really don't want to, you know, say that I'm facing these obstacles that, that other people are facing when I really don't. It, it, it's really only when, you know, my, my identities are revealed on a personal one-to-one -one level that I notice a shift in perception and a shift in behavior. I really appreciate you saying that. And I, what's in, so interesting here is part of what we're looking for essentially are the doorways that people find themselves able to start doing this work and the reason they're able to continue to do it. What is driving them from within based on their personal experience, emotionally, whatever the case may be. And so in your case, what I'm hearing from you is a lot of empathy. I understand why all these other things are popping up and I think it's great uh, because a lot of people would be able to identify with many ways that they have felt like they didn't quite belong. And there are other people I've spoken with who have found that as a way to make a connection to this work. 
um, because we'll never know what it's like to be a person of color, right? And so I, as I'm talking to you, I'm learning so much and wondering, what does the work look like from a person who is able to tap into what it feels like to not belong? Uh, So I wanted to answer the question, what's one thing about your job slash workplace that is beneficial to people of color? I'm part of a library and we're part of a union. And one of the things that we've seen a lot, as I'm sure everyone here on this podcast knows and people listening at home, that black workers tend to face persistent wage disparities. Um, And these lower earnings really reflect these centuries of structural racism in the U.S., And that I strongly believe that unions help to promote the enforcement of these sort of positive labor protections. Uh, And I know that within my library, um, we did a comprehensive investigation of the equity of wages and benefits, um, which is actually one of the reasons why I became a union steward. And during our last collective bargaining agreement contract, we used that renewal uh, to kind of reduce those wage disparities. And it made it very clear because part of the conditions of that collective bargaining agreement is that the union stewards get a, a comprehensive list of all of the wages that employees have. And I feel like that is one really concrete structural way to kind of fight this structural racism and really kind of like reduce that income inequality. Right. Um, we're now currently, I've since stepped down from being a union steward, but the new groups um, are really doing a comprehensive check and um, looking to see is, is there parity, is there equity between what different groups are in, in the library being asked to do, um, who's exempt versus non-exempt. And we're currently um, in the middle of a new bargaining agreement and we're really, the union stewards are really pushing um, the, to sort of have more uh, benefit equity and in pay increases through this bargaining agreement. And one of the really wonderful things that we have found is that there are several, I'm part of a university and that there's actually several unions on campus. And as unions, we've been able to talk to each other um, and we've been able to help each other with our collective bargaining agreements. And we have actually seen really positive outcomes when one union is able to fight for something, then we can share that with another union and say, we're able to get this benefit then that that union is then able to get the benefit. And we have seen that trickle down even to non-union members as these kind of benefits become the norm and become the standard of being an employee at this university, right? And I think that, you know, that all people really need to look and take accountability for their part in upholding white supremacy, however small, whether that's in HR, whether that's being part of a union, whether that's being part of a community, right, in your daily life. And I think that's why this is such an important podcast and project that you're doing, right, is you're really challenging people to take a look at, at themselves and what actions that they're taking. And so I think that there's absolutely ways to be able to make your job and your workplace um, a better and safer place for everybody. So transparency with a lens to equity, if I had to put it in one quick sentence, it sounds like that was kind of the power of your situation. Is there anything particular that has really stood out as a aha moment based on those experiences? Right. Um, so uh, I do teach a class at Brandeis. It's a six-week module course, and I taught it in person. And then last fall, of course, we were all virtual and online, like I imagine all of your listeners were. Our whole lives were online. 
and I had a group of about 20 students. It was our very first Zoom class, and um, only uh, about three or four names were stereotypical white student names, and the rest looked like students of color, or a term that I recently learned, uh, students of the global majority. I love that rephrasing. Gives it a whole new meaning. And the majority of students had their cameras off, and in fact, it was only the white students who had their cameras on. And in this moment, I remember it very clearly because I had a lot of thoughts in a very short amount of time. And I recognized something, which was my very first impulse in this class was to wish that everyone had their cameras on. And that can be problematic for all sorts of different ways. Uh, And actually, I speak to professors about this um, all the time is you never know where people are coming from. People could you know, be um, in a dorm room with, in, in a forced triple and they're taking their class on campus with, three, with like three students in the room all trying to do the same thing at the same time. There could be a whole family in a one or two room apartment. Um, they, you know, people may not have the same kind of technology. People might not want implicit bias to color people's thoughts or reactions so they don't put their video on. They want to be taken by their thoughts and ideas. And so I realized that I had a moment where I could really set the tone for this class. In this class, we talk a lot about implicit bias. We talk about algorithms and how they perpetuate racism, how uh, whiteness is privileged in a lot of different categories, especially when it comes to technology and algorithms. And I wanted to make sure that my students knew that this was a place where of safety, it's a place of integrity. And so I didn't tell everyone to turn on their cameras. I wanted everyone to feel safe realizing that I don't know their lived experience. I don't know where they're coming from. And all I can do is find ways to engage the students in ways that would be meaningful to them. So I don't need to count class participation as people looking at me through a tiny window online. How do I find ways to engage these students to have them demonstrate their learning in in other ways, right? So throughout the class, I built in opportunities for comments. I asked the students to use the chat in Zoom almost like a Twitter feed. Give us examples from your own life, examples from the news. Um, how how is this you know the the class lecture information? How do, how do you make meaning of this? Right? I built in multiple ways for engagement asynchronously for maybe students who didn't want to be put on the spot. Right? Every week I had uh, online discussions and reflection time. Um, I had students work in small groups. Right? I tried to find multiple means of engagement for students to demonstrate their learning. I don't need to be married to seeing everyone's face on a Zoom screen. And I think that that was a really important moment for me because I have been to other classes or, you know, taken a workshop where the lecturer wants to see everybody's face, wants to be where they are. And and I can understand why. I mean, I do think that, you know, looking at body language having maintaining eye contact can be really important to assess how well your audience is learning and understanding to make sure that they're engaged. It was in that moment 
that I kind of realized, you know, I may have first kind of had this thought, but I don't have to say everything that I think, right? Just because I had this implicit bias of, oh my gosh, I need to see all my students. I need to make sure that they're maintaining eye contact and that they're paying attention. And that's how I assess how they learn, right? Like that doesn't need to happen. I can allow for multiple modalities of learning and understanding and integration with the class learning and their materials. I had a moment of being judgmental, but that doesn't have to define the moment for the class. When you start to do this work, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. You're constantly learning. And that's actually one of the beautiful things about this work is that we're constantly learning and evolving in being more compassionate and more understanding and realizing how your behavior impacts people in different ways. And that's constantly evolving. And that's great. That's why I love this work, right? And so you don't have to be perfect to engage with this. But the more you, you work to be anti-racist, the more you can catch things in yourself and take that moment to say, huh, this is a time when I can change my behavior and I can do better than what I could have done yesterday. It's a very powerful story. You've shared so much that I feel like you've answered a lot of the questions I could ask. But before we leave, though, is there anything else you want to share? There is one word that keeps coming up for me. Accountability. And it's really reverberating up and down my back and in my throat right now. It's not enough to say the right words. It's not enough to do research like it's academic. This work is all about its impact on other people. And part of transforming is being uncomfortable. It's realizing that you have perpetuated these problems. And we talk about unconscious bias. You might not have realized that you've done it, but you may have caused harm to other people. And when that has been brought to your attention, to not be defensive, to not say, oh, well, well, I'm not a racist. I, I, I didn't mean it that way, right? Your intention doesn't matter as much as your impact on other people. And when you're being called out, it's because others see an opportunity for you to grow and change and do better. Uh, in my experience with my friends who have other, you know, marginalized and intersecting identities, if they didn't think that you were ready to hear something, they wouldn't tell you. If they thought that nothing was going to change, they wouldn't expend the emotional and physical energy to bring something to your attention and to have a really tough conversation with you. Right? And it's that lowering of barriers. It's that ability to, to be humble and to realize that every single person has made mistakes. No one is perfect in this work. And that by taking accountability and sitting with it and feeling really uncomfortable, feeling really challenged is part of the work and part of what makes this worthwhile. If we don't transform ourselves, all the reading and social media posts in the world isn't going to make a difference. That's for sure. Thank you for sharing what was feeling very present in your body. And even the way you described it going up and down your spine. I mean, to me, I think those are some of the most important things that need to be spoken. Um, so appreciate the time that you've given us tonight. I really do. 
I'd now like to share with you a guided reflection that is inspired by Esther. This will be a personal reflection on a phrase that Esther used called the imprint of otherness. We'll also be folding in compassion and kindness both for ourselves and others. So if you would please find a position that's comfortable for you that you can maintain for about 10 minutes. You're welcome to close your eyes or have a gentle gaze downwards towards the floor. Notice whatever you may be sitting, standing, or laying on and where it connects with your body, feeling that sense of support from the ground below. Become aware of your breath without trying to change it. And note breathing in, breathing out. And as thoughts arise that attempt to distract you throughout this reflection, that's okay. That's what the mind does. And as best you can, watch those thoughts come in and out like clouds across the sky, returning your attention again and again to whatever it is that we're reflecting on throughout this meditation. Feeling yourself as grounded as you can be, connected. See if you can call to mind a time you felt you didn't belong. This could be from your childhood. It could be from yesterday. With a sense of openness and curiosity, bring forward a memory, perhaps an image or a conversation that you recall. Hold it gently. To the degree that it's comfortable for you, see if you can sense how you feel or how you felt when you were in that situation. What thoughts or emotions come to mind? Without getting caught in stories, just allowing words or phrases to come in and leave. Notice how you feel in your body, if there's any tension building. If there is, I invite you to put a hand over wherever that may be happening as a gesture of support and care for yourself. I'll say some phrases that I Invite you to repeat softly or silently to yourself or phrases like them. May I live with ease. May I be happy. May I be free from pain. 
May I live with ease. May I be happy. May I be free from pain. Noticing, breathing, letting go. And now see if you can call to mind another person that you know who has also felt that they didn't belong for one reason or another. Bring them in to what you could imagine as a friendship circle that surrounds you, a circle of support and care, of compassion, of kindness. repeating the following phrases or something similar to them. Just as I wish to be happy, may you also be happy. Just as I wish to be safe, may you be safe. Just as I wish to be healthy, may you be healthy and live with ease. Noticing, feeling, breathing. Letting go. Now let's invite in another person. This is a person that you don't know personally, but you remember them for some reason. Perhaps you passed them on a street, saw them on the news, or heard about them in a story from a friend. But one thing you do know about them is that they have also been in a situation where they're feeling or being marginalized or feeling different that they don't belong. Add them again to this circle of friendship, of care and support. Just as I wish to be safe May you be safe. Just as I wish to be healthy, may you be healthy. 
just as I wish to live with ease and happiness. May you live with ease and happiness. And from within that circle of the people you've called forward, imagine including everyone in the world who is in some way feeling like they're not included. Noticing what it feels like to expand out from your heart, a sense of compassion, a climate of inclusion and welcoming. May we live with ease. May we be happy. May we be free from pain. May we live with ease. May we be happy. May we be free from pain. Thank you for joining me in this meditation. In going through this reflection myself, I immediately noticed the layers when plugging into, feeling into the sense of not belonging. There are two ways that immediately came to mind for me personally. And one is that I've chosen not to be a mother. And the other is having endured some chronic medical issues at a different time point in my life. And with the first one, I often feel that Society, of course, reveres motherhood, and it feels in many ways a rite of passage. It's something that many or most people in my life have done, and it often feels like an expectation. So to not do it and to not be able to relate to others in that way pretty easily creates a sense of difference and of not belonging. And with medical issues, especially as I was transitioning out of high school and into college, I wasn't able to go to college when most of my friends were. It had to be delayed by about four years. And at that time, there was so much I couldn't do that I wanted to do. 
So not being able to participate in life in the ways that made me feel like a full human um, resonate very strong with me now even. I'm feeling a lot of gratitude right now because as I reflect on this, I am so lucky that I've had support in both of those domains. While society may paint a particular picture that I don't necessarily fit into, I have not had to directly deal with people criticizing me in either of those cases. And I know that that's not the reality for a lot of people who are in those situations. Again, just noticing a tightness in my heart area going into my throat as I say this out loud and also feeling a little choked up, to be honest, as I just feel grateful to have the support that I have in my life. And of course, this is where the bridge building happens. I think this is what Esther was talking about, where we begin to see how supporting people makes a difference. Maybe you're feeling something now or not as you sit here with me listening to this. And I really invite you to allow yourself to be with that and get curious about it and wonder where it's coming from and how you're connecting. And to tap into that the next time you have an opportunity to do something for someone. Thank you so much for listening. I invite you to share this episode or any episodes of Mindfully White with people you think might be curious about it or would help get them involved in the work. If you have any comments or questions for me, I welcome you to send me an email at mindfullywhite at gmail.com. We look forward to having you with us in the next episode.